Let us pray. Lord, we come before you and we pray that your blessings would be on this sermon. We pray that I would speak only that which is true about you and your word. We pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you would use what you have here in your word to change us and to make us more like you. We pray that we would exalt you in our minds, even as I speak, and even as we listen to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what on earth is going on in this passage? So you're going along there in chapter 37, and you hear about Joseph, and you hear about his coat of many colors, and you know, you're know you into the whole story of Joseph and how he sold off to the Egyptians, and then all of a sudden the story of Joseph just kind of stops. And it's going to pick up again in chapter 39, where you hear about what goes on with him in Egypt. So what on earth is this story doing right here? It interrupts the story of Joseph. And furthermore, why is this even in the Bible? I mean, this is a weird story, isn't it? It has all kinds of weird things, and there's lots of inappropriate behavior, you know? And it seems like it's made up of all these disjointed pieces that don't quite seem to fit together. And, and what is the point? And did I mention this is weird? It's weird. So Moses, why did you put this story here? There's a lot to be said for reading through the Bible quickly, you know, like, um, you know, just reading through from chapter to chapter going real fast. But there's also a lot to be said for slowing down a little bit, for examining passages very closely, for reading a given text again and again and thinking about questions like, how does this fit in? Why is this here? And if you read this slowly and if you study it, I think that actually this story starts to make a lot of sense. The story reminds us of some of the things that we've already seen in Genesis, particularly the overall purpose of Genesis, which is found in in chapter 3, verse 15. And it also prepares us for what is coming in Genesis and for what is coming in the rest of the Bible. So welcome to another episode of God's people behaving badly. And as the imaginary title credits, uh, title sequence starts to play through, I want to introduce you to the characters of this story. The first is Judah, who of course is our hero. He is the son of Jacob and Leah. He has 11 brothers, including Joseph, who was sold into slavery in Egypt. There is Hira, the Adulamite. And this is Judah's Canaanite buddy. And it seems like they often do things together that you probably shouldn't do. And so you kind of wonder, maybe is Hiram a little bit of a bad influence on Joseph? And then there is Beth Shua. She is this Canaanite girl who wins Judah's heart. She is sort of the femme fatale of this story. And then there is Shua. I guess we have to mention him. He is Beth Shua's dad, which makes sense because Beth Shua means daughter of Shua. Anyway, he's more of a bit character. 
Then there is Ur, Onan, and Shelah. These are the three boys of Judah and Bethshua. And of course, there is Tamar, the widow who takes up a rather surprising profession. In the opening scene in Genesis 38.1, we read this. It happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Does that sound like a normal way of saying things to you? Sounds a bit odd to me. Let's say that I were going to Jeff's house and I told you, I'm turning aside to Jeff's. Is that how you normally say it in English? Do you turn aside to someone's house? No, you go to someone's house. Well, it's actually just as strange in Hebrew. They never say this sort of thing. They don't say that you turn aside to go to someone's place. That's weird. What I want you to think about is maybe there is a tiny, tiny little hint here that Judah is doing something more than just going to somebody's house. He's doing more than just going to his buddies. He is turning aside, in a sense, from God's chosen people, and he is turning to the Canaanites. He is turning aside from God's way of doing things, and he is turning to the ways of the Canaanites. Now, whether or not that is meant, certainly I would think that the next thing that happens is pretty questionable. Let me tell you about it and see if you agree with me. So, uh, he and his buddy Hiram go out, perhaps they're out for a night on the town, and he sees this pretty Canaanite girl, and he looks at her, and she looks at him, and he says, hey baby, the name's Judah. And they hit it off. And soon thereafter, there are wedding bells. And not so terribly long after that, little Ur is born, followed by little Onan, followed by Shelah. Is, is that questionable to you? I mean, it sounds actually, when you first look at it, kind of like a love story, doesn't it? There's nothing questionable at all about a love story. What on earth could possibly be questionable about a boy marrying a Canaanite girl? Well, it's questionable if you are part of the people of God and she is not. In fact, this is a theme that we have already been introduced to in Genesis. But to really see it, we need to back all the way up to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 which is the purpose of Genesis. It is the important line in Genesis. It is the big idea of Genesis. It summarizes everything that Genesis is about, and quite frankly, it summarizes the rest of the Bible as well. This is Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so God is talking to the serpent. He is talking to Satan. And he is saying that there is enmity, there is discord, there is strife that exists between you and this woman. We have already seen that, haven't we? Because he tricked her into eating that forbidden fruit, and she sinned against God, and so that, I think, would qualify as enmity. 
And then it goes on to say that there will be enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And I can't defend all of this right now. I'm just going to say it. Um, the idea is metaphorical. There are going to be some people in this world that love God and follow after God and believe in God and worship the one true God. And there are going to be other people who do not. There are going to be people like Eve who believe in the Savior who is to come, or in our case, has come. And there are people who do not. They will be unbelievers following metaphorically after the one who is their father, the devil himself. See? And so we are introduced to this binary choice. Either you worship God or you don't. There is no middle ground. So what happens when someone who is a worshiper of the one true God, who is in God's camp, marries someone who is not in God's camp. Well, that is explained also in Genesis in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of, men, uh, daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So what's going on here? The people who follow after God are looking at the people who do not follow after God, and they are saying, behold, she is hot. I want to marry her. And so they do, right? They found that, the, uh, they, they found that these other people were attractive, and so they married them because that's what marriage is about. You find someone that's cute, right? And what is the result of this intermarriage between God's people and those who are not God's people? Well, it goes on in uh, verse 5. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was the result. Those who followed after God married those who were not following after God, and the results were disastrous. And so God prophesies that in 120 years there shall come a great flood. That is the result of intermarriage with those who do not believe. And we see, even within the rest of Genesis, that there are times here and there where marrying a Canaanite is not a good thing. Do you remember what happened with Esau? He married these Canaanite girls, and it made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And this is a theme that continues throughout the Bible. When you uh, see that the people are going to be entering into the land of Canaan, uh, then uh, Moses instructs them, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For why? They will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. They were not to marry Canaanites. Now, lest we be misunderstood, this is not racism, okay? 
this is a matter of religion, not a matter of race. Because we also see, and first of all, it's said pretty much explicitly there, because they will lead your hearts away because the idols. But we also see lots of examples, even in the Old Testament, of people marrying into other races, but they are people who both worship the one true God. So, here's one example. Moses' wife was black. She was a Cushite. But she worshipped the one true God, and in fact, she was a really good influence on Moses. She kind of, you know, steered him in the right direction, particularly concerning Gershom. You know, she was a, she was a good lady. And then, later on, uh, we see um, uh, Rahab. Uh, Rahab was certainly an idol worshiper, but she became part of the people of God, and she married, into the pe- and she married people uh, who were uh, married someone who was an Israelite. And then later than that, we see Ruth, who is probably the supreme example of a lady who was not a God worshiper, who was definitely an idolater, but she began to worship the one true God, and she made a really, really great wife for her husband. So it's totally fine to marry interracially it's totally fine if you're vietnamese and you want to marry somebody korean it's totally fine if you're black and you want to marry somebody white that's totally cool just make sure that both of you worship the one true god does that make sense good let's move on let's go back to the negative examples samson's philistine wife called caused him all sorts of trouble solomon's idolatrous wives were his downfall and then in the new testament we read this A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So what is Paul's requirement for marriage? Marriage must be between two Christians. If one of them is a Christian, the other one has to be. Or Paul is not going to marry you. So, Let me ask you a question then, looking at all of this. Should a believer, metaphorically a descendant of Eve, marry someone who is not a believer? The answer is no. Marriage is designed to be this partnership in which the husband and wife love the same God and worship him and work together to serve him. But if someone who is a Christian marries someone who is not a Christian, they are unequally yoked. You can imagine a couple of bulls with a yoke going between them and they're trying to pull a plow. Imagine if one of those bulls is trying to go this way and the other bull is trying to go this way, yet they're all hooked together. They're not going to do a whole lot of plowing, are they? They're not going to accomplish much. And so if you as a Christian are married to someone who is not a Christian, you're not going to accomplish much for the kingdom. It's going to cause you problems. And indeed... It is quite possible that your kids will follow after your unbelieving spouse and will not be believers. And with that in mind, let's talk about Judah's kids. So the first of the kids, his name is Ur, and he marries this Canaanite girl whose name is Tamar. And interestingly enough, Ur is even farther from God than his Canaanite wife is. He is so wicked that the Lord just kills him, takes him right on out of this world. He is a bad, bad kid. 
And that leaves Tamar in a really bad position. She is a widow. And so what is going to happen to her? She is a widow. She does not have means for providing for herself. And so Leverett marriage comes to the rescue. This is one of these strange things that we're not used to seeing uh, in our culture. It is definitely part of their culture. It is not a part of our culture. It is mentioned in other places in the Old Testament, such as Deuteronomy chapter 24 and in Ruth chapter 4. But the basic idea is this. When there is a man who dies, and there is the possibility for one of his brothers to marry her, then he should because that is going to provide for her and is going, to, is going to ensure that the name of the deceased man continues. His legacy continues, if you will. And so, um, when, this husband, uh, when Ur dies, what needs to happen is that one of these brothers needs to step up and he needs to marry her and he needs to take care of her. However, any children that come from her as a result of this second marriage are going to legally belong, if you will, to the deceased man, which means that the inheritance rights are going to go to mom and the kids, not to the Leverett brother who marries. In our case, what this means is that since Ur has died, if Onan marries her, then then she is going to get Ur's part of the inheritance because of her kids. Is this tracking? What is that going to mean for Onan financially? And that's really the question. What is this going to mean for Onan financially? What this is going to, uh, so here's, here's another bit that's kind of difficult for us to understand. The firstborn always gets the double share of the inheritance. He gets two shares, and all the other brothers are going to get one share. So Ur should get two shares, the other brothers should get one share each. So if Onan marries Tamar, and she has kids, then, mom, uh, then Tamar and the kids effectively are going to have half of whatever dad passes on as the inheritance. And Onan is only going to have one quarter. Does that make sense? However, if she doesn't have kids, if she doesn't have kids, she gets nothing because she has no kids. And Onan gets half. What's bigger, a half or a quarter? What would you rather have, a half or a quarter? And so Onan comes up with a trick. He knows what he is going to do. He is going to marry this girl. He's going to pretend like everything is going to be okay. But uh, when people come asking him later on, so where are all the kids? Like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Uh, but what was he doing secretly? What was part of his plan? He was wasting his semen on the ground. He was making absolutely sure, to the best of his ability, that she didn't get pregnant, but that he looked like he was doing everything that he should. 
people respect him, and he still ends up getting half of the inheritance. It's a beautiful, beautiful trick. It is a wonderful, wonderful plan, except for one little tiny problem, and that is God. Because God sees this, and he is not amused. And he kills him. This is wicked in my eyes. The way that you're treating her is wicked in my eyes, and I'm taking you out right now. Boom. And so now, both Ur and Onan are dead, and there's one more brother. What's going to happen? What should happen? What should happen is that Shelah, you know, marries her, and things go along as they should, which, mind you, would actually mean that she and the kids would get all the inheritance, and wait a second, okay, never mind, forget that. Um, But at any rate, Shelah should marry her, but Judah thinks about all of this stuff, and he comes up with a plan. He comes up with a trick. He has this wonderful idea that he is going to do. What he does is this. Uh, He goes and he says, go back to your dad's house and live like a widow for a while, and just as soon as Shelah is old enough to get married, then I'll be sure to give you a call. Okay, bye now. I... I'm going to make sure that Shayla comes and marries you just as soon as he is ready. Now, you just go on down the road. I don't want to see you right now. Perhaps he thought that Shayla was going to die too. In fact, he does think that Shayla is going to die too. Perhaps he thought that, you know, maybe she's killing them all like Bluebeard in that old story and there's like this room in the house where there's all these dead husbands. or something. I don't know. Maybe he thought that she was cursed. But at any rate... He is not going to let Shayla be married to this woman because he is quite sure that something bad is going to become of it. And so when Shayla gets a little bit older and is definitely of marriageable age, she's still there in her house as a widow with her widow's garment on with no means for providing for herself and only looking towards disaster in her future. You see, in this day and age, you don't have a retirement account. You don't, have, uh, you don't have a whole bunch of money saved up in the bank to make it in your old age. Your retirement account is your children. And if she doesn't have any, she is in trouble. See? And so she comes up with a plan. She comes up with a trick. And she knows that it is totally going to work. It is sheep sharing time. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Uh, what? It's sheep sharing time. That means that people have got the money and it's burning a hole in their pocket and they are ready to spend it. Sheep shearing time is a time of celebration because you just got paid and it's Friday night. And so here Judah is walking along and guess who he's walking along with? He's walking with his old buddy Hiram the Canaanite. And they're going along there and, the, and he sees this prostitute that is there by the side of the road and what does he do he says i'm going to strike up a deal he falls right into that trap he falls right for that trick and he starts to make the deal he says look i'll send you a goat and she says yeah but i'm going to need a little bit of collateral i got to make sure that you're actually going to pay me that goat and so you give me something and then when you send me the goat i'll 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 give you your stuff back and he says sure that sounds great what would you like to have And she said, I would like that pretty staff that you have right over there. 
And this is important because your staff was usually carved with some stuff that would identify it as yours. And so, you know, perhaps if you saw Roll Tide carved into the staff, you would know it was Paul's, right? <laughs> yeah. And so your staff kind of, identified, it kind of identified you. And so what she's getting is something that will identify him. And more than that, she gets a signet ring. Now, a signet ring, a lot of cultures have something like this. This is mine right over here. This is my personal identification. It is called an Incon. And it is registered with the government in Japan. It is known to be mine. There is none like it. And it can be identified by the mark that it makes electronically so that the Japanese government knows it's mine. And when I take it and I press it against that little ink right there, and I put my seal there onto an official document, I have signed it, and I must do whatever that document says. If you steal this... You can go out and buy a whole bunch of stuff, put my stamp on it, and I'm responsible for paying for it. Do not lose your ink on. But this is something that is identified as mine, kind of like a signet ring in the Old Testament. And so her plan is working great. Everything is going great. Uh, he totally falls for the whole thing. And so Tamar the trickster gets exactly what she needs. And then something odd happens. So Judah sends Hiram uh, with this little goat, and he says, yeah, go out there and, and take this to her. And he doesn't go himself. You see a man of his stature and a man of his religion could not be seen paying for a prostitute. That would not be good. He is very concerned about his own honor. And so he sends Hiram, the Canaanite, to do something that's totally normal for a Canaanite. It's no big deal for a Canaanite to pay for a prostitute, okay? And so uh, he sends him, and then when Hiram gets there, there is no prostitute to be found. There's, there's just none, and it's just kind of weird. And uh, so Hiram goes back, and he's like, well, Judah, there's, there's no one there. And he said, well, look, let's just pretend none of this ever happened. She gets to keep my signet ring and my staff. This can't get out. This is not something that we want to hit the presses. This is something that needs to be hidden. We must hide my sin. Oh, about three months later, Tamar begins to show. It becomes obvious that she is pregnant. It also is quite obvious that she does not have a husband. And this, at this period of history, is quite a bad thing. And so somebody comes to Judah and says, you know, Judah, I have, some, I have some bad news for you, man. Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And what does Judah say? Bring her out so that she may be burned. Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, even harsh by Old Testament standards, trust me. This is bad. This is not how this should go down. He is filled with righteous indignation. He is like, this is unholy. This must be punished. In fact, it's the worst punishment I can possibly think of would be to burn her alive. And then comes the moment that we've all been waiting for. She appears. It's a courtroom scene. She is accused of immorality, and she says, effectively, before I die, I have a little question for you. The guy who made me pregnant, 
These are his. Can you tell me who he is? And what does Judah feel at that moment? He knows they're his. It's his staff. It's his signet ring. He's the dad. And what does Judah say? She is more righteous than I, since I didn't give her to my son, Shelah. She's a better person than I am. If I had had an ounce of integrity, I would have given her my son, Shelah. It's ironic justice. The trickster has been tricked. Judah wanted to burn Tamar, but then he realized that he needed to be burned just as much as she did, if not more. And that's the sort of thing that we see so often in Scripture. We often see this sort of ironic justice. We see the trickster tricked. We see the trapper fall into his own trap. We see the man of the sword fall on his own sword and kill himself by accident. Your sin will find you out sooner or later. You ought to be seen as honorable. You try to cover it up. And yet, your sin will find you out. Strangely enough, there's actually some good news in that. There is? Yeah, well, see, Judah, his sin found him out, and what happened? He said, she's more righteous than I. He knew that he was wrong. It seems as though Judah has repented. Throughout this whole story, he most definitely has not been one of the good guys, but here at the end, it seems as though he has repented. And this is significant. Because there needs to be 12 tribes of Israel, not 11. That is the divine plan. Judah had to have his name carried on, and that's going to happen through Tamar's children, not through his third son, Shelah. Furthermore, furthermore, Judah is said to be prominent among the tribes. He's already kind of shown that a little bit in the prior chapter. That is going to be confirmed by prophecy in Genesis 48 and 49. He is going to be important. He is going to be a leader. And so what is God doing in this story? He is taking this wayward man who has turned aside to the ways of the Canaanites and he is bringing him back to himself. God is in the process of redeeming Judah in order to make him into a great leader for Israel. Judah may have turned aside from God's way, but God is going to make sure that he turns back again. The third and possibly the most significant part of this story involves Tamar's twins. And at first glance, once again, it doesn't look that important. She has a couple kids. Big deal. Who cares? But there's, interest, there's something interesting about this story. This, these, these are not the first twins that we have seen in Genesis, and they're not the uh, first set of twins to have a rather strange birth. And you see what's going on here is, is the first son, who's, who, uh, who would be named Zerah, he manages to get his hand out first, okay? And so the midwife, she goes and she ties a little string to it to make sure that they know who the firstborn is. And um, uh, uh, and it, I, I guess it's 
sort of like in football, you know, if you can get the football over the plane of the, of the goal line, then you're the, you, you, you actually get the touchdown. You know, if you get your hand out first, you're the firstborn. But, but then something super weird happens, something that's probably super uncomfortable for Tamar. Uh, they start to fight. They start to fight horribly. And the other one manages to make it out first. And then, and, and then, uh, and then um, sorry, there's so many names. Uh, and, and then Zira manages to get out. And so you have, you have Perez, legally the second born, getting out first, all the way out. And then you have Zira coming after that. So Zira is legally the firstborn. Perez is the second born. And so are there other stories about twins in Genesis? Are there other stories about twins who struggle in the womb? Yes, there are. Is there a situation in which a younger brother thrust himself ahead of the older, metaphorically speaking? Yes, there is. You remember the whole thing with Jacob and Esau? You remember how the firstborn was not the one who ended up with the inheritance, but rather Jacob, the secondborn, thrust himself ahead, if you will. He struggled in order to get ahead of the firstborn in order to get the inheritance. So, there are other similarities as well. Um, let's compare uh, Jacob and Esau and then Zerah and Perez. Esau was older, and so he should have come out on top, just like Zerah did. But then Jacob, like Perez, sort of pushed his way past his brother. And then uh, another similarity is that Perez, like Jacob, had a very important role in God's plan. And Zerah, like Esau, not so much. When we start to read about Zerah's descendants, we don't see them turn out so great. When you look at Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, you read this. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And this is what led to their great defeat at Ai when many, many Israelites were killed. Esau's descendants became the enemies of the people of God. Zerah's descendants became the downfall of the people of God. What about Jacob? What about Perez? What about these second-born sons? Did any of Perez's kids turn out to be okay? I would say so. Listen to this. Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, who begat Judah, who begat Perez, who begat Hezron, dot, 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 who begat Joseph, who begat Jesus. Who is the royal line going through? It goes through Judah, and it goes through Perez, the secondborn, Perez is in the direct line to Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. Now let's back up a little bit. 
Do you remember Genesis 3.15? There was the promise of the Savior. There was the promise of this one who would crush the head of Satan. There is this promise of this special son of Eve who is going to be the Messiah who is going to suffer and die in our behalf so that when we believe in him, our sins are covered by his blood. That is going to happen, and that has been prophesied. It is going to happen through a select group of parents, and Perez is one of those. God is going to accomplish his plan. He promised in Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah was going to come. It is accomplished much later, which we read about in the New Testament. But even here, in the midst of this crazy story, in the midst of all of these weird things, and this is a weird story, and it's filled with all sorts of crazy stuff, and it's filled with sin, and it's filled with chaos, and it's filled with nuttiness. And what is that? That's God accomplishing his plan. You mean God is accomplishing his plan even in the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of this sin, in the midst of this craziness and weirdness? Yes, he is. You ever had a day where your life seemed kind of weird, kind of crazy? You're upset because people have sinned against you and you don't see how anything good could ever turn out of your situation? God is at work. He didn't stop being at work in the midst of the chaos and the sin and the craziness back then. He is still at work right now. And he is going to make sure that all of these weird, crazy, sinful people around you are not going to thwart anything in his perfect plan for your life. So you should never despair because we have a God that is at work in the midst of chaos.